Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to Scholarly Communication, the podcast about how knowledge gets known. I'm your host, Daniel Shea, and this is another episode of the Focus All We Mean, an ongoing discussion and debate about how we mean and why. The premise of the podcast is that meaning production and the products of meaning making are pretty much everything there is for us humans. As a species, we do not encounter a thought or a thing, not even ourselves, without us going and making meaning with it, or adding meaning to it. Meaning is how we act, as much as it is why we do. And so the subject matter of this focus reaches into absolutely every quarter of human life. Our daily routines, our career paths, our bids to acquire new knowledge, our attempts at connecting with or at disconnecting from one another. The format of All We Mean is simple. I open every episode by stating plainly the topic, and then my guests take up this topic to discuss and debate it in the hope that we all might learn something more about meaning. The topic of today's episode is, it's not TMI, it's TMC, too much communication. And for that, I'm going to read two very different texts. The first is an excerpt from the podcast On with Kara Swisher, The second is a short passage from Sigmund Freud's lecture, The Anatomy of the Mental Personality, held in Vienna during the 1910s. But first to my guests. I welcome back Bill Cope and Mary Calanzis, both professors at the University of Illinois. Hi to both of you. Hi there, Daniel. How are you? Lovely to be back. Thank you. Great to have you both here again today. So right directly to our topic, which is TMC, too much communication. And to get us started, um, I'm going to read those two excerpts. So here's the first on Kara Swisher, released the 22nd of October. And the guest who's doing most of the speaking here is Deb Roy, director of the MIT Center for Constructive Communication. And I quote, Deb We all originally learned that Meta and X were social networks, and at some point, if you think about it, we learned that it's actually social media, not social networks. That changed just in our language. If you think about why we changed gears, it was because these two companies in particular figured out a business model by just adapting the media model. So yes, that came with advertising. But the basic idea of the media model is a broadcast model. And so back to competition, one way to talk about winning is being first. Another way is to build the biggest audience. There's nothing wrong with building an audience. But if that is your only way to communicate, you're going to transform from a social network to social media, where now the point of the platform shifts fundamentally from connection between people at a social level to some people emerging as having a platform, having an audience. And then you take away all the gatekeepers and incentivize certain kinds of behavior, even if it's not purposeful, where the fact that disinformation wins in terms of capturing attention, in some ways, it's just a byproduct. It wasn't the intention necessarily of the people designing the platforms, Kara. In some ways, you think, well, what did they think was going to happen? 
Deb. Honestly, I'm not sure that Kara... Honestly, I don't think they thought at all. I'll be honest, I was there. They didn't think at all. Deb. Well, you know, I've had conversations with Tim Berners-Lee, thinking about what would be the consequences at scale over the World Wide Web, and there was in general an assumption that with more connection, we come together. It seems actually pretty intuitive. The possibility that with more connection we can actually come apart is pretty counterintuitive. But if you take the media model, sandwich it in a social network, you get this completely new, it's not the media industry anymore, right? Something's transformed, far more powerful in many ways. But where provocative extreme points of view, strong opinions just tend to get the most traction. And now the second excerpt, this is from Sigmund Freud. Now about the superego. We have allocated to it the activities of self-observation, conscience, and holding up of ideas. For us, the superego is the representative of all moral restrictions, the advocate of the impulse towards perfection. In short, it is as much as we have been able to apprehend psychologically of what people call the higher things in human life. Since it itself can be traced back to the influence of parents, teachers, and so on, we shall learn more of its significance if we turn our attention to these sources. In general, and parents and similar authorities follow the dictates of their own superegos in the upbringing of children. Whatever terms their ego may be on with their superego, in the education of the children, they are severe and exacting. Okay, so end of the second excerpt, and now what about this idea of TMC instead of TMI in relation to either of these excerpts that we've just had? Well, what a complicated range of issues come up as a consequence of these two very different uh, excerpts that you uh, read and from different epochs. Uh, so. It's interesting that not so long ago we used to talk about moving from broadcasting to pointcasting, and now that's kind of old hat. Uh, what we have now is so many ways in which meaning is communicated through uh, the digital, whether you know, uh, and and it's called social because it goes beyond the small, uh, the individual or the small groups. So it's it we're in a in a kind of can I say brave new world uh, uh, in in the ways in which we can uh, get information out and not just information, just points of views, perceptions, anything. It's always been the case that we've had propaganda. It's always been the case that we've had control of those uh, avenues of uh, intention around making meaning in society. But now, I think as these quotes suggest, we have individuals who are becoming social actors, and these individuals have all sorts of views, not just about information. Uh, uh, it's about uh, having more followers, having more impact, and that uh, over, uh, overcomes any um, uh, kind of sense that you have to kind of fact check what you're doing or put it within a framework. It's anything goes. And sometimes the more notorious you are, the more following you get in this in this social media. So it is really very uh, pertinent that you also read the Freudian thing because each of us brings into that 
um, array of uh, vectors, uh, what we were born into. So none of us said, oh, excuse me, higher power, I want to be born white or or poor or rich or black or whatever. It happens to us, but it socializes us. And, you know, the old arguments about what's nature and what's nurture. And we bring that now into these uh, vectors of communication. So it's the affordances of the digital plus what we as individuals bring from the habits and mindsets uh, into this space. And we have a cacophony of uh, access to what's not even just communication, communication, information, noise, you know, um, horror, whatever you want is available to you now. That's actually... That's actually just the point for me. I mean, what it actually is, because you, you've said now, Mary, a few times that it, it's not just about information and so on. And, and, and you say there again, it's, it's, it can be different things. Yeah, it can even just be horror, for example. But for, for, in, in, in my opinion, that's, that's, that's the idea behind this too much communication. It's, it's as if it's really just a matter of scale. You know, I mean, it's really just if you take like information as being, let's say, meaning contents that are passed on and uh, that have some sort of value and you take communication as just being sort of a surface you know an available surface for for putting things on it's it's like the table across the world just got huge and everybody can put something on the table well i'm agreeing with you and i'm saying it's the affordances of the digital which is the manufacturing part of it right plus what we bring in as individuals from uh, the world in which we were born that's coming together and amplified in such a powerful way and it isn't uh, information and it isn't communication we don't I'm not even sure we have the right language for what circulates out there and how we select what uh, we receive Bill so let me just say um, a couple of things about this one is okay too much information too much communication so we're in this society now where we're just overloaded by communication and we're in a situation where everybody's able to speak and they're all able to speak at once and things that become visible are things that are, as a consequence, sometimes outrageous. So where I'd like to start thinking of it around is, is the question of how did somebody like Trump become a political actor? in such a powerful way. He was an unlikely person to become president. He was a, a, a mediocre, uh, frequently failed business entrepreneur in New York City, and there's lots of those. Um, so how did he become that? And I, I think he became that around mastering the media. And then when he be, uh, and, and then his real you know, site for, for trumpeting out his voice became Twitter. Right. And what I want to understand, what I was trying to think is, OK, what is the nature of this as a medium which has created Twitter as this political space? And by the way, Elon Musk uses Twitter as a way to publicize his business That's ventures personal, and personal, personal stuff. But also yeah. he becomes a personality. So people yeah. buy Tesla cars partly around who is sometimes and because it's connected with SpaceX. And, you know, there's a whole pile of outrageous things that he does, some of which work in business terms. Um, doesn't look like X is going to work in business terms, but that's a different problem. So anyhow, I was kind of asking this question, what is it about Trump? And I'm going to start with, I'm going to mention two tweets. Um, one um, uh, was um, uh, Trump's throwaway comment um, that um, 
No, I'm going to start with this proposition. Let me go back one step further. Um, um, the proposition is, why do people find Trump a truthful person, an authentic person? There's a whole lot of people vote for him. You know, the liberal press, New York Times and all the rest, they're busily fact-checking him and proving him that he's a liar on so many different fronts. But the people who vote for him believe he's a truth teller. So in what sense is he a truth teller? Well, um, I'm going to get to Freud in a second. <laughs> but he's a, he's a truth teller in this sense. Um, uh, when um, Miss Venezuela complained that he'd made um, approaches to her of a sexual nature which were problematic, uh, his response was, well, she was fat, right? And I wouldn't be attracted and to her. And I wouldn't be attracted to her, <laughs> right? So in a way, what a, a normal person wouldn't say that, right? Um, uh, no, I'm not well, saying normal. No, no, no I'm going to get to no ego. No guardrails. Yeah, no guardrails. <laughs> a, a person, a, a sensible, but in a way, what you know is you know he's kind of telling the truth, right? You know, it, it's a perverse truth. Yeah. But nevertheless, there's an authenticity to that. Now, here's another tweet. Um, Billy Graham dies and Barack Obama puts out a tweet, which is, he was a great preacher and a great man, and we're sorry to lose him. Well, look, he was a great Republican who went and prayed with Richard Nixon in his hour of sin. Um, and, you know, did Barack Obama really mean that about... So, in a way, Barack Obama is classical, polite, liberal, political discourse, right? But we know that Barack Obama probably didn't quite mean what that tweet said. But we do know that, that, uh, that Trump meant it. Now... The, the, I'll get to the, the, the Freud quote. Who is Trump and what is his kind of person, his kind of personality, and how does social media make that personality possible? Well, it makes it possible because you can say what's on your mind instantly and it gets to a zillion people, you know, if you've got a lot of followers. Um, and in a way, you know, the, the, um, the, 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 the Freud edifice is there's an id, which are these primal motivations that we all have. There's an ego, which is our individual uh, motivations and thoughts and, and what we say and what we do. And there's the superego, which is a set of cultural um, uh, guardrails, I suppose, is one of the words, but a set of, set of things taught by parents, taught by teachers, taught by society, where we don't say things which are just on our mind, you know. Um, so in a way, what's interesting is this social media plays off egos and not super egos because the, the things that get really really profoundly um, noticed most picked up and most noticed are people who are authentic by, by virtue of saying what's really on their mind and what, what's really think what they're really thinking so my rhetorical question is um, is this the end of society <laughs> have we all been conflated has the super ego all been conflated back into the ego and we're just speaking to ego and by the way a very good example of this another good example by the way is the spare the um the the harry biography which is completely unvarnished truth about stuff speaking in a way which polite royals would never have done right but bill there's also a construction of new tribes so to speak and i think of a trivial example but it's one that kind of puzzles me young girls and even not so young girls uh, in in this social space, the social media space, uh, post pictures of themselves pouting with red lips. Now, you know, uh, there, there was a piece I read once that said it, it's, it kind of co compares to a baboon on heat, you know, uh, the, the red lips pouting. And yet 
They all do it, one after the other. I've never seen a man pouting with red lips, but the girls do it, and they become part of this tribal community. And even Taylor Swift, who I thought was had more sense, there was a picture of her pouty, pouting with red lips in the same shape as a baboon's uh, uh, back end. Uh, so there is, there is this kind of uh, tribal thing that happens around symbolic small symbolic things where you attach yourself to them. So there's a, a tremendous factor, fra fracturing that occurs, uh, as you say, but also a, a um, coalescence around very superficial things uh, because for Trump, his authenticity is, is kind of superficial in a way because his actual real actions, you know, what he does as a leader, as a decision maker, are very profound. But it's these more trivial things that people are attaching to, you know, rather than what he actually does. Because if you actually looked at what he actually does, you'd have a different point of view uh, about him. So... Yeah, but that, I think that's I think that's what the communication um, surfaces, as I've, as I've been calling them, affordances, as as more technically, you you would be calling them, uh, kind of allows is um, so so this tri this this tribal aspect that you were just talking about. This is a wonderful example, and it actually, as you were speaking, made me think of um, you know when I was a boy, when I was at school, you know there was. There was something a week long that was cool, you know. Maybe you raised your hand when you didn't have a question, or there was some kind of like, "Ha ha, hey," you know. I don't know some sort of stupid saying that people had on for fourteen days or whatever. But the thing was, is that this was in a small town in Massachusetts, and it involved about thirty people, right? <laughs> and you know, we had that contact during the day to be able to pass that thing around. But this pouting that you're talking about, you know, it takes over, takes over the globe, you know, yeah, and it, but it's no, it's no different in a way. Uh, but also, you know, part of the thing is about immediacy as well. So, um, you know, the old media, the old broadcast media, the television studios, the newspaper uh, offices and whatever, however problematic the journalists were and however pro problematic the studio people were in the television and the television business, um, they were, if you like, filters. Um, and so they didn't, you know, the, the possibility of something taking off like this quite so simply um, doesn't, doesn't really happen. So, you know, that, that, you know I think it's the, it's the immediacy of this media. Now, you know, one of the, we have a, a wonderful colleague in um, Brazil who came here as a visiting research fellow for um, six months. His name's um, Petrosan Pinheiro. He came here. And um, uh, and he had a, a, a nice, although unfortunately multisyllabic, ugly multisyllabic word, but a very nice concept. Um, uh, in the old media, on the on the old information environment, the the word that's often used is the panopticon or the old institutional environment, the the which is Foucault's idea of the Jeremy Bentham prison, which is everybody you're being watched all the time, you're being looked at, um, you're being surveilled. Right. And but the word that Petrelson created was the multi synopticon, which is everybody's looking at everybody else. And the everybody else now these days happens to be millions and millions of people posting this stuff. And the ones you looked at most are the ones that just kind of float to the top. And again, going back to Freud, it's because they have <laughs> egos unrestrained by super, super egos, so to speak. Um, and but the old media kind of by virtue of the professionalism, if you like. So the old media was very problematic, was owned by media barons, and it was highly ideological, as Mary, the word Mary used earlier, propagandistic. It was propagandistic in the sense that it was pushing out a message 
a lot of the time, which was the message of the Mughal and the message of the Mughal's connections with the ruling, ruling group in society. But nevertheless, there were professionals in the middle who created a kind of a, a social filter, if you like. Right. And, and Daniel, can I add that, you know, like, just like before we used to talk about broadcasting, now we have to really think what kind of casting there is out there. We used to also have very clear ideas and theories around what we call class, gender, race, as problematic as they might be. But what we're seeing as a consequence of the affordances of the new technology is you're getting affinity groups. Now, Bill and I used to write about this, that people were moving in and out of identities and into affinity groups, and that this was overtaking even those categories of class, gender and race, but more so now in the communication domain. Um, And these affinity groups are not static. They're not determined by any particular kind of a firm or normative kind of uh, uh, d- dimensions. And they're shifting around all the time. It's, it's like our transpositional grammar, our, our case that meaning is always shifting. These affinity groups are formed. They're small, they're large, they get larger, they shrink, they they reform and go somewhere else. And it is, I use the word cacophony, but I don't know what it is. But you can take any crisis point now, any crisis point, whether it's Russia, Ukraine, whether it's the Middle East, whether it's the political situation here, whether it's Africa, and and this shifting around and is, is just so powerful. And I think the other point that Kara brought up in the quote that you sent us is you either join the shifting around and the affinity groups or you back off and you're silent. And, and silence itself now is regarded... Uh, as a violence, if you're not in with one of the affinity groups. So it's a kind of different terrain, a different ecosystem of meaning making that's unfolding before us. And the interesting question that comes up also in the um, Kara quote is, okay, well, what is the design behind this? Um, that, that, that That's brought up explicitly um, by, by Deb Roy saying it wasn't the intention, Yeah. But I get the sense that you get the communication that you use your technology to give. You know, I mean, it's it's not necessarily in the design of the technology, but in the use that we have then any sort of agency to figure out, okay, well, what do we want to do with that? But I mean... To, to wrap the two uh, uh, quotes now together, as, as Bill has already done for us, it would appear that the ego has just taken over and <laughs> and we equate, equate the communication with the intention. You know, it's like what you're able to do is already what you do. Right. And it is just this, look, it's, it's you know, the word, it's cloud computing that allows it, right? It's, you know, the newspaper had to be delivered. It had to be printed. There had to be somebody who was paid to do it. There was a big industrial infrastructure um, behind it. The television had a big industrial infrastructure behind it as well. But it is just cloud computing, which allows this very, very fast, um, you know, like there's a server there in the middle and you can be on your computer or your phone, wherever it is, it goes to the server, bang, instantly it's out to everybody else's phone or computer. Now, you know, that, that, so this then evokes this word affordance, right? Which is affordance is the possibility. It gives, it creates new possibilities. But one of our kind of corollaries to the word affordance is 
when you can, you probably will, yeah. right? There will be no restraint. By the way, this applies to AI as well. When you can, you probably will, yes. right? So don't say, oh, we're going to have guardrails and we're going to have rules and we're going to set up regulatory frameworks. I saw today the UK is trying to build regulatory framework around um, AI. But, you know, like, I mean, will you be able to do it when the, the lead characters um, crazy and feral? We've just watched this open AI debacle going on as, um, as well. So, you know, I mean, um, so the, the, the problem with the word affordance is not that it refers merely to possibility, but what it does, it opens possibilities which are almost immediately taken up. Right. And it goes back to something we said very early in our own uh, research and work, and that is the most revolutionary thing that has occurred with the digital is the manufacturing of meaning itself, whether it's audio or visual or text or whatever, is now available to little children, to anybody with the same uh, elements you know, you don't have to have a printing press. You don't have to have technology for taking photographs or whatever. You just go into this uh, uh, whatever device you have and you can press and get whatever you can manufacture, whatever mode of meaning you want. And then the other affordance is, you know, the ubiquitous nature of it, that you can send it off into the world anywhere. And so agency the manufacturing of meaning, the affordances of the digital and agency come together to produce these vectors, these uh, uh, multiple meaning uh, patterns. But because we're also social, we do also coalesce around uh, particular affinities or particular values, particular symbols. So, you know, that, that tension between the individual and the group, which is part of what it is to be human, is at play. But now with a new architecture and a new ecosystem of communication and meaning making. Yeah, and I mean, one of the uh, themes that has run through a, a lot of your work, and certainly the two books, Making Sense and Adding Sense, was this idea of how, yes, the digital has accelerated things, just as you're saying there. And I think we've, you know, we thought we were going fast and now we're going even faster. <laughs> somebody, somebody really pushed the accelerator. I mean, because it just, just to give a thumbnail history of the past, say, 20 to 30 years on the digital end, let's say with phones, yeah, a phone once began as a shoebox sized thing in the 90s in your car. And it was called a car phone. And then in America, anyway, it went through its um, transmogrification of a cell phone, even a cellular phone for a while. And then, of course, a cell until somewhere in the 2010s, people just said phone. Right. I mean, in the language itself, we could see I mean, that's that's fairly rapid. Yeah. For <laughs> for um, vocabulary or Lexus to change it that way. But the, the really interesting thing that I'm. Um, um, I want to sort of draw attention to here is just what you're saying, Mary, is the social aspect to it. There was, in relation to phones or people's behavior around phones, a period where there was some, let's say, agency in whether or not I have one, what sort I have, how often I use it. And I would say since 2015-ish, yeah, mid-2010s, it's become such that, you know, you 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 need I mean, you would be from Mars if you didn't have a phone, right? And, we, and... Don't, we don't have a phone in that sense. In fact, right now, 
uh, uh, the etiquette is that you do not phone people. You yes. use what well, you call a phone to text them. Right, you it's a device them. nowadays, yes. yes. <laughs> it does. So actually, the phone is dead. The, the phone is dead. We, we don't know what to call it yet anymore, right? I mean, it's I get into trouble from my grandchildren if I ring up. Yeah, no, you don't do that. No, that would be crazy. I'm, I'm, I'm now annoyed by ringing, to be quite frank. So, you know, I've, I've, I've slipped into it. But again, it's this question of affordance. You know, we can do it these other ways, which are actually more polite than a bell ringing in somebody's presence. Well, it's right? your convenience. Yeah, it, 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 it is better in that way. But, I mean, the, the point that I was getting at was, was sort of the long-term trajectory of the fact that, you know, it, it's really at the point now where it's not even considered whether. It's just how, you know, I mean, the device moves on without anyone now really, you know, yes. questioning its existence there. It's like, you know, it's like a street now, you know, it's just and, there. And, and Daniel, to continue, uh, you know, our line of thinking, you don't even do it with uh, words necessarily. You do it with a picture, you do it with an emoji, you do it with, you know, sending a, a pin, Right. There's these other ways in which you communicate what you would say, well, meet me on this street at that time, wherever. Like it's really the multimodal dimension of it is a really important part as well, because we've shifted into these shorthand ways of doing it and towards the visual and away from the textual. One of the real problems, though, um, is... We have a problem, Mill? Uh, the problem is that <laughs> the stuff that's being spoken about and communicated about. So, look, on the one hand, people say these these media uh, have fantastic possibilities for human knowledge. We can look up everything. We you know we can be in a restaurant and, and the whole of Wikipedia is in our pocket. Yes. We can look it up and have a sensible conversation about something um, and look up things along the way and... And, you know, so in other words, we have the world's knowledge at our fingers trips, so finger trips. But also, Miss Venezuela is fat, right? <laughs> so, you know, what is it? It's this unholy mixture of incredible possibility and incredible junk and very problematic politics. Right. So what, uh, the question is, what do we do about that? Right. Um, and but so but, but the other kind of thing to think back to is at the very beginning the, the last great if you like the last great media revolution was um happened down the the road from where you are at the moment daniel which is the printing press but in the first 50 years the printing press almost everything that was produced was rubbish you know it was bits of paper which had kind of you know religious funny quasi mystical religious promises on them and so you know um so very little of that first revolution, which was big, was actually devoted to stuff which was worthwhile. So what do we do in media generally um, in terms of the bigger project we have about sorting out truth from a pile of rubbish, if you know what I mean? Yes. You, you well, know. yeah, that brings us back to, you know, the TMC instead of the TMI. I mean, uh, another one, of uh, speaking of Gutenberg, how about the um, Gutenberg McLuhan's Gutenberg Galaxy and the idea that the media is the message? I mean, this would seem to line up in, in my mind with this idea of too much communication. I mean, is it not possible that the means themselves become, I mean, what people would consider normally just a conveyance as if it didn't have any meaning itself becomes part of the meaning so you know a phone in itself is let's say already you know uh, showing expressing social well, meaning well a bit i can remember some decades ago when when we first got these things my uh, daughter saying when you go on a date nowadays she said 
you know, because people have the phone, they're always looking for a better option. It's not as if you can have in-person commitment. There's always instantly the possibility of somebody better to talk to, somebody better to go out with, uh, because it's possible. And as Bill said, if it's possible, they're going to do it. So, uh, you know, it, it, it works at that level too to kind of fray. Uh, it opens options and frays relationships at the same time. Now, what do we do? Let's turn off social media. <laughs> no, we, we, it's not possible to turn anything off. And we as educators, what we try to do, of course, is that to think, how can we prepare this generation that's in an accelerating world of, of technology to, to be able to engage with it meaningfully, uh, to participate in it meaningfully. But as educators now, our voice has shrunk in comparison to what they're exposed to through their devices. So we struggle to find a way of preparing uh, uh, the people, we, we the education systems, uh, uh, in in a set of values, in, in a set of any norms that we can agree upon, in a set of facts, in, in a set, set of kind of knowledges that they can use in the world. We are competing as educators with so much that is, uh, you know, it's, it's like a torrent that comes to them through their devices now. And even for very little children, uh, very small children who can talk into the phone and ask YouTube to give them whatever they want. I don't think we've quite really adjusted the systems that we have uh, to recognise how we can be effective in this new, uh, you know, kind of torrent of uh, communication, which doesn't always have relevant information in it. No, I, I totally agree with that. And I think that uh, Bill's example earlier of having at our fingertips the world, right? All that information, we can just jump into Wikipedia or anywhere else that we want. And yet we don't see that that conversation in the cafe, you know, about some topic in world politics is not the same conversation that we would have had 25 years ago. It only looks the same because we still sit in chairs and drink coffee. But that phone has actually changed the way that the, I've, I've noticed it myself. I'm old enough to have been in two different types of discussion where, for lack of certain facts, the argument went in a different direction or different evidence was pulled up. But what happens now is rabbit holes are opened where people go into fact after fact or piece of information of, or piece of information after piece of information or whatever it might be. And the discoursal level of argumentation is often lost, frayed, jumpy. So, Daniel, you're, you're talking to us as experts, supposedly, you know, uh, and, you know, you're in this podcast where you want to communicate expertise from experts. But we as experts in education are, are saying to you that the struggle to have expertise that's relevant is becoming more challenging day by day. Uh, the, our capacity um, to hold our learners uh, or put them in particular direction is kind of a tug of war with what they come in with, which is to go back to Freud, uh, where, we, where we started. What they bring in themselves and, uh, from their own experiences, from their own needs, how it interacts with what we're trying to share with them from our experience and, and expertise to this point. But we have to be learners again. Like every day we have to 
learn anew those things that we thought we understood, all the theories, all the, you know, kind of paradigms, all the frameworks that we that were precious to us and that we want to communicate to our learners uh, are being challenged uh, by the way in which they live their lives and the way in which they access information. So we have to be on our toes in much more powerful ways than before when you used to get the professor with the yellowed pages who'd go into a lecture and repeat the same lecture every year, year after year, and the learners sat there passively saying, uh, oh, yeah, that's interesting, I'll take this with me. It's not like that anymore, but our institutions and our habits are very slow to change. Yeah, and look, one of the... Um... Uh, so what what's the antidote for this? Well, what, one of the antidotes is um, <laughs> tell tell children to be careful about what they put on social media because it'll, everything's instantly recorded and some of it will come back to haunt you. So um, um, so you know there's there, there are kind of ways to say look this is a problematic kind of space to be in because the affordances are as follows um, and you might regret what you said a little bit later on. Your superego might catch up with you or your adult superego might catch up with your child ego. Um, so be careful what you say because it's all recorded. So, you know, there, you know what we've got to do is build these um, simple rules like that, if you like, which is a way to um, build a bit more decorum into the whole system or a bit more restraint or a bit more... Um, but look, the logic of following uh, and the logic of, um, of, of, of likes actually, which is people who are approving of what you're saying, does kind of magnify whatever the most outrageous thing. Yeah, right. You can't yeah, be... that, that, that's what Deb Roy is saying in, in, in the quote that I took there at the beginning of, of, of the interview, for sure. Yeah, uh, it's a different it's a different economy. And I mean, that brings us back to this question. I mean, so too much communication is, is clearly then you know, a call for something else, right? Too much of anything is, is is wrong in a way. And I mean, we're all here kind of groping for some way forward as to, well, what, what can we do to improve things? And Mary, you've also made it very clear, okay, in education, this is, uh, you know, in learning settings, this is a serious challenge. And I mean, I've seen that myself, even at the, at the level of university. I mean, I would, I would argue, and this is what I try to do in my current position um, here in, in Germany, is to make the learning environment as authentic as possible and to engage then a bit, as you were saying, Mary, as a learner in the material that needs to also be learned by the others. Yeah, I mean, that is, I think, one of the ways forward uh, I, I mean we're getting into learning now <laughs> which might be a topic for a future date but but it still relates back to communication you know the ancient Greeks used to say pan metreon ariston which is always uh, be in the middle or pan metreon you know kind of way always way, in moderation uh, always in moderation but the t-shirts in new york right i remember seeing them people people in the streets excess is not enough <laughs> <laughs> well, I also have a friend who likes his cheese, and he'll say there's never too much cheese. So, I mean, I guess, you know, there's exceptions here and there. But excess is not enough, which is a New York slogan. It's kind of the, the, the slogan of this digital moment. Excess is not enough, and you have to keep, and, and that's where we started uh, today with your, your uh, you know, 
putting those two polar issues around communication together. And um, the, uh, the mind now is shorter and shorter in maintaining a, attraction uh, to something, you know, and it's got to keep being refreshed with new things and new things and new things and new things, right? There is, you know, that, that's in fact what the Biden, um, uh, what was it, the executive order was about that particular thing in, in the internet and other, uh, other apps, which keeps young people particular in the thrall of the flow, right? And excess is not enough. They, you know, from morning till night, they can just keep scrolling. Yeah, th- and this and this this is precisely the communication issue. I mean, in your book, yes. um, um, adding sense, for example, yeah. you lay out, you lay out the whole um, framework of participation with representation, communication, our key word for today, and then interpretation. And I always understood communication in the middle there as being available. And availability, if you like. Yeah. Right. So yeah. there's the representative process and the interpretive processes. These things yes. are complex and, and human driven, but this communication element is it's it's there. And yes. I mean we just have so much there now right. that I think those processes on the other end are being, you know, truncated. Right. So you asked earlier the, the question of design, and I do gather there are a number of people who are kind of talking to uh, you know uh, Twitter and or X or uh, Facebook or uh, Instagram and and pointing out to the people who run these things that the way they designed which produces this continuous flow and this continuous scrolling uh, you know people have pointed out the damaging effects the miscommunication effects the kind of uh, effects on the brain, etc. And and what did these people say in return? But they like it, <laughs> right? So the people who run these designs, the Zuckerbergs and the others, after having been told what the dangers are in communication, information, scrolling like this, they say, but they're in demand. People, the people are obviously by doing this means that's what they want. So what do you do when these things are controlled by super elite individuals, not the state, not a department of education, not the White House. They're controlled and designed by people whose commercial interests are greater than any other kind of interest. So all these things that can have damaging effect are of no consequence if they are continually being used. So that's the dilemma we have now. It's not just you know, we have the manufacturing of meaning, which has become democratized, right? But we also have the designers of the channels in which we manufacture meaning uh, with their own particular angles, not always necessarily uh, for the social good or for free speech, as what they say and what they do does not match up in terms of um, kind of ethical issues or uh, social good. There's one difference, though, between that and the, the uh, traditional media. Uh, Randolph Hearst and Rupert Murdoch both had access to grind, and they made sure their, um, of their editorial lines yes. uh, were grinding those axes. You know, I think that in a way people like the Musks and the Zuckerbergs and the TikTok folks, the ByteDance people, are amoral in the sense that they don't even right. spend any money on journalists, they don't spend any money on. They only um, want to to remove 
the most problematic and the most dangerous fringe things, people who want to build bombs or people who want to, you know, child pornography or, but everything else goes. So one of the problems is that these are, if you like, lazy libertarians, lazy in the sense that they don't bother having an editorial line, they don't bother um, uh, libertarians in the sense that anything goes, um, but also they are people who, uh, and they don't want to spend money on that, of course, because it's just pure profit. If all the people who are participating in social media do all the work, it's just pure profit from the advertising. So whereas poor old um, Randolph Hearst and poor old Rupert Murdoch had to pay people to have a product that was worth advertising. So in a way, that's that's intrinsic to what they are. those media are, which makes them uh, un- different from the traditional media in a, in a big way, actually. But, but also it's... It's what magnifies the voice. The readers of a newspaper and the viewers of a newspaper, uh, the viewers of television, listeners of radio, had almost no voice. Here, the only thing you hear is the voice of the reader. But and they, the vo- compete, voice of the listener. they compete with us, Bill, as educators. All the institutional uh, virtues and values and practices of education are now competing directly with the influence and the impact and the information and the AI now that they can access and you know, the whole world and right is absolutely competing with those institutions. And I'm not sure that we've mapped that out properly. Yeah. And I mean, this, this, this comes back, in my opinion, indeed, to the communication, because I mean, that was one of the central issues in the Cara uh, Deb uh, conversation that we had, you know, what was the intention behind this? Well, what were they thinking? What did they think was going to happen was what Cara said. And she's, she tells us she was there, they weren't thinking anything. And that's exactly, that appears to be exactly the point that, with the overtake of communication or communicative things out there, it's it's not anymore a little bit like I was sketching out there with the with the uh, phones. It's not anymore more a question of why or whether. It's really just what, and especially what next. You know, there's no there there is no need to. You know, it's it's it is a different. I wouldn't say amorality. It's a new morality. Yes, but you know, uh, the, you know the new squabble at the moment between Elon Musk and is it Sa- Sam Altman? Sam Altman. Yeah. Sam, or the squabble was that they were part of the creation of the ChatGPT, the generative AI, and initially it was supposed to be open source, and immediately what happened, you know, it's now uh, being carved off into a for-profit area with subscriptions and other charges, and this is a, a, a disagreement now with Elon Musk who said it should be open source, but he himself is producing something which will compete with this. So it's the giants, right, competing around a market share, you know, with products that they work together to produce and with this kind of framework of um, freedom, a a, a different understanding of freedom and, and, and an architecture of theft because they've collected everything anyone has ever written or drawn or said or whatever and are packaging it and re you know and making it available to us as users but they're the ones making money out of it not the people who originated uh, the content that they're using so what do we do about it we just sit back and and watch it like a circus well okay so maybe closing out then for today 
<laughs> since the circus has begun. Um, no, actually, this, this whole program should have just been a tweet. I don't know why. <laughs> it's way too long, yeah. It's uh, too long. We could have just done a tweet. Yeah, well, it shows, it shows the school we come from, the old school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but in any case, yes, uh, maybe going back over our, our much too long tweet, our bloated tweet, um, 142nd tweet, um, <laughs> What would each of us here have as a sort of takeaway from our talk about it's not TMI, it's TMC? Um, maybe Mary, if you'd, yeah, you'd like to kick I, it. I, I still go back to this old, old uh, discussion about the individual and the group, right? And I think at play here, we're seeing more complex versions of that relationship between an individual's values, ideas, their ego, whatever, and the affordances that that we now call social. And social is not our community, it's not our country, it's not our region. Social now is the world. And so that I have to rethink theoretically, what do we mean between the individual and the group? And what does nature and nurture now mean in this context? So that that's my uh, you know kind of overarching dilemma. All right, uh, uh, Bill. How about yourself? Look, I'll go back to um, you know this is a question of affordance. So the the affordance is the device plus cloud computing produces an immediacy, which wasn't there before in traditional media, and and there are no filters. There are all the all the readers are now writers, and all the viewers are now makers of images. So I'll go back to the 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 Freud quote. Um, it allows the possibility of unvarnished expression of the ego when there are no social and cultural filters the sort of things that teachers did the sort of things that um that journalists did um, which created some sort of social decorum if you like so this is the reality it's with us it's not i'm not saying it's bad these technologies have a whole lot of great things about them as well the question is um how do we make sense of it and what do we do with it and for myself i would probably draw attention i mean the reason i had originally hit upon this idea of too much communication was actually in reading your uh, book uh, adding sense and and i realized the, the distinguishing trait of communication is this as i was saying making available and uh, i would like to understand better explore here more about the idea of okay well this is meaning too you know the means themselves the the medium this opening up of immediacy is in form of meaning. It, it seems to many counterintuitive because you would think, well, yeah, it's just junk, as we've said at times, or trash. But but that doesn't take, you know, people are doing things, they mean something by it, or they want something, or uh, there's a structure to it, and so on, and these things develop. So so that aspect of it, you know, from a meaning perspective, continues to interest me anyway. Yeah. But anyway, so those... Um, that was our uh, episode for today. It's not uh, TMI, it's TMC. And my guests were, again, Bill Cope and Mary Kalanzis. I'm Daniel Shea, and this is Bye to Everyone. Bye-bye, and until bye next bye. time. Thank you, Daniel. Bye-bye to all. Until next time on All We Mean.